0: Tonight, we are in uh, part two of our series called Strongholds. Uh, And during this series, what we're doing is talking about how to tear down the spiritual strongholds that exist in our life. And uh, a spiritual stronghold is a place where a false belief, a false idea, is strongly defended or protected. It's a mental or, or emotional space that is controlled by our spiritual enemy, Satan, And these spiritual strongholds, they typically begin with some kind of wound in our life or some kind of hurt or some kind of disappointment. And on that kind of vulnerable, broken foundation, our spiritual enemy begins to construct a wall around it, to guard it and to defend it. And that wall is constructed with different lies and different false beliefs. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, these are kind of our our theme verses for this series. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with as believers are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power. They have supernatural power to demolish strongholds. Paul says that we are fighting a different kind of war. It's not a war, it's not a battle with flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle that we can't see. It's a battle that takes place in our mind, a battle that takes place in in our hearts. And in order for us to tear down these spiritual strongholds, it requires that we lean into God's supernatural power and we allow his truth and we allow his word to combat the lies and the false beliefs from our enemy. So last week to begin the series, we talked about the strongholds that are built on the family wounds that we suffer. We talked about the family wounds of of divorce, of broken relationships, of of tragedy, of of, of dysfunction, and how our spiritual enemy will often construct these strongholds around those wounds. But tonight, we are going to look at the stronghold of shame. Stronghold of shame. And here's what shame is. Shame is a a painful feeling of, of embarrassment or humiliation Um, that's really caused when we become aware of of some kind of wrongdoing or or foolish behavior. It's this painful feeling of, of, of embarrassment, humiliation, when we know that we've messed up, when we know we've done something wrong, we know that we've done something foolish. And shame, it can be an incredibly powerful and destructive force in our life. And you see, shame, it comes from a number of different sources, Oftentimes, shame, this feeling of of embarrassment, humiliation, sometimes it comes from ourselves. When we sin, when we make a mistake, it's easy for us to kind of get stuck in it. And rather than making progress and moving forward and growing and learning from it, oftentimes we get trapped, we get stuck, and we become a prisoner of our sin. And that sin, that mistake, it begins to almost define us. It becomes a part of who we are, it becomes wrapped up in our identity and it begins to produce this feeling of shame in our life because of that mistake or that, that sin in our life. But sometimes shame, it comes from other people. Somebody will do something to us that is wrong, something we didn't deserve, something we didn't ask for, but because of their actions for us, we begin to develop this sense of shame. Or sometimes people will find out about some sin in our life, they'll find out about a mistake that we made, and they'll begin to define us by that mistake. They'll begin to, to label us, they'll begin to categorize us, they'll associate us with that sin or with that mistake. But you see, whether our, our shame is coming from, from ourselves, it's coming internally, or if that shame is coming externally from somebody else, regardless of that, our spiritual enemy, Satan, is always behind it because shame is one of the greatest weapons that he uses to defeat us. It's a weapon that he uses to keep people from coming to know Jesus, where he kind of paralyzes them in their shame and make them feel like there's no way I can ever go to God because of what I've done or because of who I am. And shame is a tool that Satan uses to kind of paralyze Christians to knock them out of the race, to make them feel like they're unqualified, to make them feel like they're unequipped or unloved by God. You see, the Bible describes Satan as the accuser. And any time that we sin, any time we fall short of God's standard, what Satan begins to do is he begins to accuse us. He begins to shout accusations against us in our heart and in our mind. He constantly reminds us of our sin. He reminds us of our shortcomings, how we fail time and time again. And this shame that, that he begins to, to, to create in our life, it often leads us to, to believe these lies. It begins to distort and twist reality and, and truth, and we begin to believe lies like, God could never forgive me. I mean, after what I just did, after what happened last week, and after what I said, after what I did, there is no way that God could forgive me for this. I know he's forgiven of me, uh, of things in the past, but this is just too big and too severe for God to forgive me. Or we'll begin to believe lies like, God can't use me anymore. Like, I've been disqualified. There's no way God could use somebody like me. There's no way God would want to use somebody like me after what I've done, after what I did. Lies like, man, I'm just, I am too far gone. I am broken beyond, beyond repair. I have made too many st- mistakes. I've messed up too many times. I've kind of at the point where God couldn't even do anything with me if He wanted to. And lies like, man, I don't have any worth or any value. If people knew who I really was, if people knew what I struggled with, if people knew uh, the the things that I think about, the things that I say, they they, they would look at me and they would not think I have any worth or, or any value. We begin to believe these lies, these false beliefs begin to develop out of this shame that we feel. But tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to look at a story that is found in the gospel of John. And in this story, we are going to see a woman who felt incredible shame over who she was and what she did. And this shame that she felt, it came from herself, from the way that she viewed and saw herself, but it also came from other people and how they defined her by her sin and by her mistake. But we're also going to see Jesus' response to this woman's shame in this moment. So in John Chapter seven, verse 53, it says this. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they brought in a woman who was caught in adultery. She was caught being unfaithful to her husband. And they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now Jesus, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. You see, these religious leaders, they hated Jesus. They were jealous of him, they were envious of him, and they were doing whatever they could to try to stop his ministry and kind of put him out of business. So they came up with this plan to try and trap him. And what they did was they caught this woman literally in the act of adultery. And they drugged this woman from, from that, that, that place to the temple, which is kind of like our, our church nowadays. And Jesus is there. He's getting ready to teach this big group of people. And in walks these religious leaders with this woman who has just been caught in adultery. And she's just kind of shoved there in front of everybody. She, she probably was barely clothed. If, that, if at all, maybe she had a robe on or a towel, but she's brought in front of all these people and she's forced to stand there in front of Jesus and this entire crowd. And they tell the whole crowd listening what she has just done and who she is. And then they ask Jesus this question. They say, Jesus, we have caught her in adultery. <clears throat> in the Old Testament law, Moses says that she should be stoned. Jesus, what should we do here? You see, stoning in the Old Testament was the penalty for adultery. This was kind of an acceptable consequence for that kind of sin. But the purpose of their question that day wasn't to to try to to, to get justice for the law. They, They weren't trying to do the right thing. They weren't trying to be helpful. They were trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they could use against him. You see, if Jesus had said, yes, she needs to be stoned, then it would have alienated all the people he had been ministering to. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, all these people he'd been spending his time with, they would have begun to see Jesus as harsh and severe, not full of love and and not full of grace. But if Jesus stood there and said, no, she shouldn't be stoned, then he would be saying something that contradicted the law of Moses. And they would have a rightful reason to, to bring a charge against him. And they, had, they finally believed, look, we have trapped Jesus. There's no way he's getting out of this. No matter how he answered, we will have something to use against him to stop his ministry. But listen what happens next. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote, on the ground, I, I want you to notice. I want you to pay attention to what Jesus does. Jesus does not deny that this woman's sin is deserving a punishment. He doesn't pretend like it's not an issue. That's not a problem. But what he does is he calls the character of her accusers and the question, and he says, "Okay, I hear what you're saying. So whoever here has not sinned." you can go ahead and throw the first stone. Those of you who are perfect, that, that, that have never sinned, that never messed up, you go ahead and punish her. I'm not saying that, that you're wrong about what she deserves, but if you're perfect, if you're without sin, you go ahead and punish her. Listen to what happens next. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. You see, Jesus, he saw, saw right through their trap. He knew exactly what they were trying to do, and he wasn't going to fall for it. Instead, he embarrassed this, these religious leaders. He took their trap, he took their question, and he turned it on them. And one by one, they left frustrated and defeated because once again, they weren't able to trap Jesus. But now Jesus is here standing with this woman, in front of all these people, this woman who has just been caught in, in, in adultery. I, I just want you to imagine for a moment the shame that she probably felt in that moment, the shame about who she was, the shame about who, what, what she did. She has been publicly humiliated in front of everybody. Like, everybody knows what she's done. They're beginning to label her with certain labels. They're saying all kinds of of things about her, and she's probably terrified that she's still going to be stoned because she knows that is the rightful consequence for what she's done. She's terrified. She feels shame. But listen to what Jesus does next. Jesus straightened up. He looks at her eye to eye, and he asked her, "Women, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And then he says this, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, I want you to notice the the two parts to Jesus' response here, because both parts are critical to our understanding. First, he tells her that he does not condemn her. And you see, to be condemned means to be guilty. Guilty to be deserving a punishment. It means to, to pass judgment against somebody when you condemn them. And this woman, she was guilty. She was deserving of punishment. She was deserving of condemnation. But Jesus tells her, look, there's not gonna be any punishment. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to, to condemn you. But then he doesn't stop there. He says, I don't condemn you, but now you need to go and you need to leave your life of sin. Notice, Jesus doesn't ignore her sin problem. He doesn't say, hey, don't worry about it, ignore everybody else, live your life, do what makes you happy. No, 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 He addresses the sin issue in her life, and he invites her to repent. He invites her to stop sinning and to turn her life in a different direction, He wasn't okay allowing her to continue on in this lifestyle, and this pattern of sin. No, 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 Jesus had something better for her. He was inviting her to a new way of life. He says, I don't condemn you, I don't judge you, but you need to leave your life of sin. You need to repent and turn in the other direction. And that leads us to, to our big idea tonight that we're gonna unpack for the next couple of minutes and it's this that condemnation leads to shame. Condemnation leads us to that feeling of shame, but conviction leads to repentance. You see, there is a significant difference between condemnation and God's conviction. And this difference is so important for us to grasp because it helps us to understand how God views our sin, and how God views us when we sin and when we, when we mess up. You see, to be condemned means to be guilty, to be deserving of, of punishment. And the Bible is, is very clear that every single one of us, we stand condemned because of our sin. We are guilty before God and we are deserving of eternal punishment. And this condemnation that we're under it often produces shame in our life where we feel embarrassed, sometimes even humiliated over what we've done and who we are. And you see, shame, shame is our natural human response to our guilt. When we feel guilt, when we feel condemned, when we feel judged, our natural response is is to feel shame. I mean, you see the first example of shame all the way back in the garden with Adam and Eve when they sin and sin enters into the world and breaks their relationship with God and they realize that they're guilty, when they realize that they are, are condemned because of their sin, they immediately feel shame about who they are and what they did. And when they feel that shame, they run from God and they try to hide from him. And they start to believe these lies of God couldn't love me, God couldn't forgive me, there's no way God could look past this. But you see, shame is a very self-focused response to our guilt. Because rather than recognizing that we've sinned against God and that we need to turn to God, what shame does is shame causes us to turn inward. It causes us to feel embarrassed. It causes us to, to run and to hide and to focus on ourselves that, about what we did and who we are. But you see, our condemnation and our guilt when we're experiencing that, God wants that to not drive us away from him. God wants us that to drive us to him. Listen to what John 3.17 says. For God did not send his son, he did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, to cast judgment on the world, to punish the world, but he sent Jesus to save the world through him. God did not send Jesus to condemn the world. He didn't send him to to accuse us, to remind us of our guilt. He didn't send Jesus to, to punish us. He sent Jesus to save the world. He sent Jesus to provide a way out, to provide a way forward out of our sin. Because without Jesus, our natural response to our guilt and to our condemnation, it is shame. But for those who place their faith in Jesus, who draw near to Jesus when they are guilty, they are no longer condemned. They're no longer guilty. They're no longer deserving a punishment. Listen to what Romans 8.1 says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no guilt, no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Jesus are no longer condemned. They are no longer guilty. But here's what we need to understand this salvation that Jesus offers to every one of us, this, this, this chance to be rescued, to be saved, it always comes through the conviction of our sin. Jesus didn't come to condemn us, but Jesus did come. To convict us and what does that mean what does it mean to, to be convicted let me start with a few things that conviction isn't conviction isn't a guilty conscience where you do something you probably shouldn't like cheat on a test or steal something or lie and you you know you kind of feel bad about it you know not not bad enough to do anything about it but you know you kind of feel bad about it that's not what conviction is Conviction is not a a nervousness that you're gonna get caught where you do something wrong and you're afraid that your parents or your teacher or or somebody at church is gonna find out that's not what conviction is. Conviction is not feeling bad because you got in trouble. A lot of times the reason we feel bad, we feel guilty is because we got caught and we got, got in trouble. Here's what conviction is. Conviction is a work of God where he brings our sinfulness to our awareness, where we become aware of God's holiness and our complete brokenness and our inability to do anything about that. Conviction is God bringing our sinfulness to our attention where we begin to recognize it for what it is. But you see, the purpose of God's conviction, it's not to shame us. It's not to beat us up. It's not for us to to feel bad about ourselves and who we are. It's not so that we run and hide and turn inward and try to keep ourselves away from God. The purpose of conviction, students, the purpose of conviction is to lead to repentance, where we come to the place where we are broken over our sin, and rather than continuing on in the same direction, continuing on in the pattern of our sin, we stop our sin, we stop the pattern, and we turn our life in a different direction. And rather than continuing to run from God and hide from God and push God away, instead we turn and draw near to God. And the Bible tells us that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's not God's anger and frustration with us. It's not God's disappointment and and disapproval over who we are or, or, or what we've done. It's God's loving kindness. It's his grace. It's his mercy. That is what draws us to repentance God convicts us not so that we will feel shame, but so that we'll repent, so that we'll break this pattern of sin and turn in a different direction. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. He says, for the kind of sorrow, the kind of brokenness that God wants us to experience, it leads us away from sin and it results in salvation, the sorrow, the, the heaviness, the, the the weight that God wants us to feel, it's not so that we feel bad about who we are, it's not so that we feel shame, but it's so that we will stop sinning and we will turn to God for salvation. Listen, students, God is constantly convicting the world of sin, both believers and non believers. He's convicting non-believers of their sin so that they will recognize their need for a savior, that they will realize that they are guilty and that they are deserving of, of eternal punishment and separation from God. And God's desire is that all people will turn to him. But in order for somebody to turn to God for salvation, they have to recognize their need for a savior. God has to convict them of the sin in their life. They have to become aware of it. They have to draw attention to it. They have to recognize, I can't fix my problem. I need someone to rescue me. I need someone to save me. But God also convicts believers. God convicts his children. God convicts those who follow him. And if you've ever experienced conviction before in your life from the Holy Spirit working inside of you, conviction is not enjoyable, It's not fun, it's not pleasant, it's typically heavy. And it's like this spiritual weight that you carry around with you. You know, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I know when when I've been under conviction from God about something in my life that I need to repent of, there's times where like, I can't sleep at night. Where I lay there and and my mind is heavy, my heart is heavy. I feel God working on me. And rather than, than confessing and repenting, I hold on to that. And there's times where I actually, I lose sleep. You know, there's times where conviction will literally make us sick to our stomach, where it affects us physically, where it begins to to, to wear us down as the Holy Spirit begins to reveal that sin in our life. Conviction, it robs us of peace and joy in our life. Like, it's hard to have peace, it's hard to, to have happiness, and joy and fulfillment in life when the Holy Spirit is convicting us and we continue to ignore it and to push it away. But the purpose of this conviction, the purpose of God convicting us, it's not so that we feel bad about ourselves. It's not to make us feel ashamed and where we run and we hide from God. The purpose of his conviction is to lead us to repentance, to break the pattern of sin and disobedience in our life, and for us to draw back to God. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter two. Don't you see, he's talking to Christians, don't you see how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you? Like, does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that it is God's kindness? His kindness is intended to turn you from your sin. So students, whether you are a believer in Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus or not, God's desire is never at any point in your life for you to feel shame. For you to feel shame over who you are or what you've done or what somebody else has done to you because shame does not come from God. But God does convict and he convicts powerfully and he convicts consistently and he does so to lead us to repentance. So as we as we wrap up tonight if you have that conviction in your life if you feel like God has been working on your heart, he's trying to draw things to your attention, rather than resisting that, rather than pushing away and trying to ignore it and feeling shame about what you've done Draw near to God instead. Don't resist his kindness. Don't resist his grace in your life. Lean into it and respond with repentance. Break that pattern of sin and make the decision to turn in the other direction. Condemnation, guilt, it leads to shame, but God's conviction, it leads to to repentance. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, and tonight as we worship, and we're going to sing about the heart of God, about his kindness, about his mercy, and his invitation to every single one of us, regardless of how far we've run, how much we've messed up, to draw near to him to not run, to not hide, to not feel ashamed, but to know that we have a heavenly father who is pursuing us, who loves us, and wants to show us his grace and his kindness. It just requires for us to repent, to stop the pattern of sin in our life and to turn towards Jesus. God, we thank you that you are a God of grace and forgiveness and compassion, that you are slow to anger, that you are patient, that you are abounding in love. And God, tonight I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict both believers and non-believers. Lord, that there's anybody in here who has never come to the place where they have called out to you and asked you to rescue them from their sin, from their brokenness. God, tonight you would make their their, their sin, God, just so evident in their life and they would recognize their need for a savior. But God, for those of us who, who call ourselves believers, who are followers of you, Lord, if there is some unconfessed sin in our life, something we've been hiding, something we've been ignoring, God, I pray that your conviction would be heavy tonight. God, that we would feel that. And Lord, we would not leave here and run and hide and feel ashamed over what we've done, but God, that we would respond to your kindness and to your grace that we would repent and draw near to you. We thank you, God, that you sent your son to Jesus to take our place, to take on our sin and our shame and to nail it to the cross. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray and we thank you, amen.